This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray. O God, to taught the hearts of the faithful through the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, St. Dominic, St. Philip Neri, St. Thomas Aquinas, the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And I'd like to begin this reflection on the transformative power of divine beauty with the topic of deification and theosis, which I believe can grant us a theological ground for what we uh, want to think and pray about during these days. We have just celebrated the mysteries of the sacred triduum and are in the middle of the Easter octave. These are the most important days, really, of our liturgical year. And reflecting on what we have celebrated, what we have experienced in uh, our prayer, it seems to me that as Catholics we sometimes have a better understanding of what Christ came to save us from, sin, evil, death, than what he came to save us for. In Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, we'll hear more about this from, from George Corbett, it seems the raw imagery of the inferno engages us more than the ethereal vision of the Paradiso. Now, the Eastern tradition, Eastern Christian tradition, has a bold answer to the question, what Christ came to save us for, in the doctrine of theosis or deification. This doctrine was developed by Greek fathers, Above all, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, St. Athanasius of Alexandria, and St. Cyril of Alexandria. The doctrine is also present in the Latin tradition, above all in the Latin liturgical tradition, but also in St. Thomas Aquinas, for instance, when he writes about Corpus Christi, the feast for which he composed the prayers and put the office together, in the Carmelite mystical tradition and elsewhere. But it is perhaps most clearly and most boldly affirmed in Greek Christianity. It used to be typical for scholars to speak of two basic patterns in the Protestant period and the early Christian period for understanding salvation. A juridical or legal pattern, which is strongly represented in Western Christianity, and it focused on forgiveness of sins and justification, the great uh, bone of contention of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, starting with Luther, how do I become just or justified uh, be- before God? And then there's another pattern associated with Eastern Christianity, seeing salvation as participation in God, in God's nature, deification. Now, such a simple dichotomy is superficial and in the end misleading, and it usually comes with a value judgment Until recently, liberal Protestantism, represented by the highly influential historical theologian Adolf von Harnack, saw in deification really part of the way in which Eastern Christianity lost the pure original gospel and developed a philosophical rather than biblical concept of Salvation, whereas the Western Church, again according to Harnock, preserved the genuine biblical message as it proclaimed sin, forgiveness, and moral living. According to such Protestant, more specifically Lutheran hermeneutic, this understanding of salvation reached its glorious summit in Martin Luther's justification by faith alone. Today, the tables have been turned, and by contrast, theosis is seen very pos- positively throughout. Uh, 
well, the Christian spectrum, and has even become quite a fashionable theological topic. And it is used by Eastern Orthodox theologians to argue for the superiority of the Greek over the Latin tradition. As I said, such dichotomies are superficial and in the end misleading. There is no doubt that scripture gives us evidence for both pattern of understanding what Christ came to save us for. And St. Thomas Aquinas expounds both healing grace, gratia sanans, making us again right before God, putting us into the right relationship with God, and elevating grace, gratia elevans. Now, already in the patristic period, there are at least two quite distinct ways of understanding such participation in God, such elevating grace. And therefore, one shouldn't really speak of two patterns, East and West, but perhaps of three altogether, because deification can be understood in two ways, in two different trajectories. On the one hand, um, there's an understanding of deification that focuses above all on sharing in what later Eastern Christian theology calls God's energies. That corresponds to some degree, but not completely, to what Western theology means by the attributes of God. So in this understanding, salvation consists in sharing God's qualities, in particular sharing in God's incorruptible life so as to overcome human mortality and corruption, corruption, biblical term, indicating really the, 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 the finitude of our earthly life, which is bound to decay and is bound uh, to end, and sharing in God's incorruptible life and his immortality opens us up to the life of the world to come. Now, because of such a focus on sharing in God's qualities, this pattern can sometimes tend towards impersonality, a kind of um, mystical blurring of distinctions, both for, uh, between individuals uh, and, in more extreme cases, even between individual believers and God, sort of not respecting anymore the difference that there is uh, and remains between the creator and creation, the creator and his creatures. And there are some early Christian theologians that at least in some places in their works come close to asserting that believers are eventually absorbed into the being of God, almost you know, swallowed up in their personality in, that, um, in the being of God. Origen and St. Gregory of Nyssa have some passages that can be read in such a way. So a mystical trajectory of what participation in God or deification means. On the other hand, there is an understanding of salvation that uses these same concepts, participation, deification, but understands them above all in personal terms. So those church fathers who hold this view still speak of salvation as sharing in God's incorruptibility, but the emphasis is really on the personal communion with, well, the three divine persons, the persons of the Trinity. So to be deified, to be sharing in God's nature, it's not so much being absorbed into God in any sense, but it's to be adopted as God's beloved child. And so to share in the communion that the Son of God by nature, Jesus Christ, has with his eternal Father. Now, when we hear this word adoption today, it can have a kind of strong legal connotation, um, kind of even juridical, dry aspect, but that is not meant uh, by it. In some, in quite a few of the prayers of uh, the Easter Triduum, especially of the Easter Vigil, this note is struck quite forcefully of adoption. We are adopted as God's children. We become God's children in the divine son. Good language here uh, doesn't help us because what we really become is, is the fili in filio. So we sons in the son, but um, God's children in um, the divine son and sharing that relationship of love which the father eternally has with the son and the Holy Spirit. So becoming drawn into that communion of love which is God the blessed trinity. So this would be the personal pattern of 
trying to conceive what deification, participation in God is. Now, many early Christian theologians, church fathers, combined two or all three ways uh, of thinking about the salvation brought by Christ. So we also find, for instance, in Eastern Christian theologians, a juridical element, justification, forgiveness of sins, restoring of original righteousness. And on the other hand, we also find in Western authors, such as Augustine, an understanding of what deification means. So I gave you a few texts that illustrate this understanding of sharing in divine life. St. Irenaeus of Lyon, above all, remarkably developed and sophisticated Christian theology at the end of the second century. Very recently, Pope Francis has uh, declared St. Irenaeus a doctor of the church. He hasn't been one until recently because he's also venerated as a martyr and uh, liturgical uh, the, uh, understanding of uh, the communion of saints, martyrs rank higher than doctors of the church, but uh, he has recently been declared a doctor of the church as a doctor of unity, unity between East and West. At the heart of um, Irenaeus's theology is this idea of being adopted as God's children, understood as personal communion with God. So not just in certain qualities which God possesses, such as, you know, immortality, uh, freedom from pain, and so on, but much more being drawn into that Trinitarian life, which is a sharing of the divine love between the eternal Father and the eternal Son. And this gift uh, of sharing in God's very life is connected with the incarnate logos, with Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word of God. So the incarnation is not just a stage to pass through in our uh, sharing of God's very nature, but is of eternal um, significance. To be united to Christ is to be united to the incarnate um, Word of God. And by becoming human and even carrying our own um, human nature up to God, we too have been made capable of sharing in that divine life. So adoption lies at the heart of St. Irenaeus' understanding of uh, salvation. When we receive the word made flesh, the true son of God, he makes us his adopted sons and daughters, and we can then also share in the life, the incorruptibility, the immortality, um, the true freedom that a share in the son's life can grant us. This personal trajectory is then taken up, especially in the Alexandrian tradition, by the great champion of the Council of Nicaea and its creed against um, Arius in the fourth century, Arian controversy, St. Athanasius of Alexandria. And St. Athanasius put this in a classical way. Um, you have the text on page two. For he, Christ, well, son, was made man, that we might be made God and manifested himself by a body that we might receive the idea of the unseen father. And he endured the insolence, insolence of men that we might inherit immortality. This is the wonderful exchange of which also our liturgical prayers speak. The son of God, the eternal word, entered into our human condition, even to the point of suffering and dying so that we might indeed receive from him divine life. St. Cyril of Alexandria in the early 5th century, in many ways um, indebted to, to St. Athanasius, develops this personal understanding of deification and, uh, interestingly, connects it very much with the Holy Eucharist. Because the Eucharist, the Blessed Sacrament, is really the vehicle through which we receive that divine life which God wants to grant us. Cyril is very uh, profound in his development of this idea of deification and emphasizes both our status of divine, um, adopted sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father and our communion of love with the Son and, and the Father in the Holy Spirit. Now, 
The Son, the eternal Son, has that relationship of love with the Father eternally by its very nature, always um, proceeding uh, from the Father. We have it by grace. So we are sort of inserted into this relationship by divine grace, and that is an act of divine love, nothing God would owe us, but it's something that um, we receive really through the salvation Christ has won for us. The Felix culpa, the happy fault of the exalted in the Easter vigil, so that what is actually gained through the sacrifice which Christ took on for our sake is something even greater than we originally or man originally had in its create in his created state, Adam and Eve in paradise. Interestingly, um, Cyril of Alexandria also places a great deal of emphasis on our human inability to rise up to God, and thus emphasizes of God's downward action, God reaching down towards us in his mercy, especially through the incarnation on uh, the crucifixion, to elevate us. The theme of ascent is usually a kind of platonic uh, theme, um, was then also taken up in, in Christian spirituality, but as Augustine makes so clear in his confessions, any attempt to make such an ascent to God will fail unless God draws us, unless God really comes to our aid with his grace and sort of pulls us up. We on our own uh, cannot ascend. It's God who draws us. And Cyril also makes that um, very, very clear. Developing the idea of the wondrous exchange, the wondrous exchange that happened at the incarnation. Cyril puts that also in very bold um, terms. He says, for this cause, though he is life by nature, he became as one dead, that having destroyed the power of death in us, he might mold us anew into his life, and being himself the righteousness of God the Father, he became sin for us. The um, late Jesuit theologian, Father Edward Oakes, su suggests something very interesting here, sort of commenting on um, Cyril of Alexandria. And he, he says, thus we arrive at a peculiar paradox. Often those spiritualities in the West that stress the humanity of Christ, his suffering along the Via Dolorosa, the agonies he suffered on the cross, and so forth, as the popularity of the Stations of the Cross, which began in the late Middle Ages, are unbeknownst to themselves, expression of this doctrine of divinization, deification. For provided one holds fast to the doctrine of the substantial union of divine and human natures in Christ, then any stress on Christ's humanity is itself a portal to God's revelation in Christ, an aperture opening to the divine and a sure access to our true path of real divinization. It's a complex but an interesting thought. See, um, the Emphasis on deification, divinization often goes hand in hand from Eastern Orthodox perspective with a certain critical attitude towards the spirituality that developed later in the course of the Western Middle Ages, Gothic period, that focused very much on the humanity of Christ, also on the suffering of Christ. In the Middle Ages, you then have these uh, crucifixes that very much depict the suffering Christ, his blood-stained um, uh, body, uh, his, the expression of suffering. Uh, on the cross, by contrast to earlier depictions of a sort of triumphant uh, king reigning from the tree. And so you have a whole spirituality that emphasizes um, the, the, hu the human suffering of Christ, the stations of the cross. But, of course, this is never just uh, a human suffering. It's just the, it is the suffering of the Son of God made man, the Son of God incarnate. And that's also the eternal significance of the passion, that it's... I mean, of course, as a, as a human story would be moving in, enough, but it is, it is much deeper and goes much further because it is the Son of God in his humanity suffering on the cross and through entering into the depths of our existence, even to death on a cross, also drawing us into a sharing of his divine life. So rather than a kind of um, departure from... Um, spirituality of the first millennium. It is actually a legitimate development and um, really um, 
helps us to enter deeper into the mystery of Christ, something which I hope you've also experienced in these past few days of the of the um, sacred triduum. Now, Western authors, St. Augustine, uh, who towers above all of them, um, do not use this technical language of deification, theosis, but basically teach the key elements of it. So we are called to union with God, a union that will grant us, as St. Augustine writes, unspeakable joy, in, a in which, in a certain way, the human mind dies and becomes divine and is inebriated with the riches of God's house. Commentary on the Psalms. We are inebriated with the riches of God's house. What does it mean to be well, in heaven? What is our heavenly uh, existence like? Well, um, Augustine writes, sharing in the eternity of God's own substance, a freedom that is beyond the power of human nature alone, freedom that gives to those who are truly sharing in God, a freedom so great as to exclude even the possibility of sin. So the true freedom is actually uh, not being able to have that choice, as, as the modern uh, mind conceives it, but true freedom is well, uh, not to be able to sin being truly drawn to our uh, supreme good, God himself, a healing of our corrupted human nature so that it will be fully integrated, fully subject to God, so we truly, that we can truly um, be sort of formed and transformed, shaped uh, by God and don't have to battle with the remainders of our fallen state. A peace that is the tranquility of order reigning within each individual and putting all our relationships right among, each, uh, among one another as well in the city of God, in the, in the community of the redeemed. And a peace that is both our ultimate happiness and our highest good. These ideas St. Augustine develops especially in the city of God. And then St. Thomas Aquinas building in many ways on St. Augustine, and um, also, for example, on the liturgical tradition, I gave you a prayer which is now used for the Mass on Christmas Day. O God, who wonderfully created the dignity of human nature and still more, more wonderfully restored it, grant, we pray, that we may share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. So true partaking in the divine nature. Now, how does this um, take place? How do we have access to this elevating grace in this life? And here, certainly, the sacramental dimension of deification is important. It is in the sacraments of the church that this healing and elevating grace is communicated to us. First of all, in the sacrament of baptism, which is the good door and the gateway to the sacramental life. Passage from Lumen Gentium, Vatican II's constitution on the church, incorporated in the church through baptism, the faithful are destined by the baptismal character for the worship of the Christian religion. Reborn as sons of God, they must confess before men the faith which they have received from God through the church. So we receive that baptismal character where we are imprinted with the seal of belonging to Christ for the worship of the Christian religion, which something, of course, not limited to worship and sense of liturgy, but making our whole lives into an act of worship of God. Now, this grace which we receive in baptism finds its summit in the Holy Eucharist, as already intuited by St. Cyril of Alexandria. It is in the blessed sacrament of the altar that God himself nourishes us with his divine life. We actually receive the word incarnate into our very bodies. We receive Christ bodily, the word made flesh, made bread, so to speak, loosely. And it is through our sharing in the incarnate word, in the sacrament, that we also grow in sharing his divine life. 
But there's another aspect of the Eucharist here. You see, all the other sacraments were instituted by Christ and entrusted to the Church primarily for our sanctification, for becoming members of the body of Christ, for growing in grace in the different moments of our life. But the Eucharist's first purpose is actually to glorify God, to glorify God through offering to the Father the sacrifice of the Son together with the sacrifice of the Church. So the Eucharist, more than any other sacrament, is marked by having this dimension of glorification, glorifying God as its first movement. So the Eucharist's first purpose is a liturgical one, actually, a properly liturgical one, and that is precisely the worship of the Christian uh, religion, the glorification of God. And after this um, theological foundation, I'd like to move on to what uh, I'm calling the liturgical foundations, my second point, the revelation of the glory of God. In 2008, um, Benedict XVI wrote a preface to the first volume of his collected writings. According to his express wish, it was actually the 11th volume of the projected series, Theology of the Liturgy, that appeared first. That was the explicit uh, wish of uh, the then Holy Father. It is also the only volume that has so far been published in English translation. Now, in his preface... Benedict explained the reasons for his choice, which to him was an obvious one, because the sacred liturgy had been central to his life ever since his childhood, and it is at the heart of his theological work. There was another reason, he writes, to begin the series with the volume on the liturgy. The editorial project should reflect the order of priorities of the Second Vatican Council. Benedict draws attention to the fact that the Council's first document was the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. And what may at first glance appear to be a coincidence, it was believed to be the least controversial of all the documents, in fact, um, should also be seen under, uh, from a providential perspective and, according to Benedict, turned out to reflect the order of the Church's work and purpose, he writes, By starting with the theme of liturgy, God's primacy, the absolute precedence of the theme of God, was unmistakably highlighted. Beginning with the liturgy, God tells us, beginning with the liturgy tells us God first. When the focus on God is not decisive, everything else loses its orientation. Saying from the rule of St. Benedict, nothing is to be preferred to the liturgy, literally the the work of God, the Opus Dei, in the rule of St. Benedict, applies specifically to monasticism, but as a way of ordering priorities, it is true also for the life of the Church and of every individual, each in his own way. Benedict then recalls a theme he has explored in his various writings on the liturgy, and that is the fullness of the meaning of the term orthodoxy. Because Orthodoxy, according to Benedict, doesn't simply mean having the right idea, the right understanding about God. But doxa, second half of the word, word means not simply idea, opinion here, but glory, in German, Herrlichkeit. So Benedict reflects it is not a matter of the right idea about God, rather it is a matter of the right way of glorifying him, of responding to him. For that is the fundamental question of the man who begins to understand himself correctly. How must I encounter God? Thus, learning the right way of worshipping orthodoxy is the gift par excellence that is given to us by the faith. So, in this passage, after having recalled the priority um, of God for the church as a whole, and in fact for each and every one of us, different states of life. Benedict then really goes on to to, um, develop his understanding of how our aspirations for truth, for goodness, for love, and, of course, for beauty, 
are grounded in the all-surpassing reality of God who reveals himself to us and wants to respond us by glorifying him, by um, worshipping him. And in this worship, something of the glory of God also um, is reflected. And the liturgy is the way of really relating to God as he wants us to relate to him. So again, not uh, simply by having right ideas, right concepts, or as important as that is, but being sort of schooled in a form of life into which we are initiated in the first place by faith and baptism. I'm referring to St. Benedict here, St. Benedict defines a monastery as school in the Lord's service, really, so being formed and above all being formed by the, the Opus Dei, the, the, which he calls um, uh, the liturgy, being schooled in the service of the Lord, in entering the, that right relationship with him, but of course also with uh, the brethren of the monastic community and our brothers and sisters in the mystical body of Christ in general. So there's a profound connection between uh, liturgy and beauty. And Benedict explores that in his magisterial document, Sacramentum Caritatis, a document that came out of a synod uh, on the Eucharist from 2007. And it's a, it's a long quote, but it is, I think, an important text that leads us into really the core of our uh, reflection. Hence, I'd like to quote it in full. This relationship between creed and worship is evidenced in particular way by the rich theological and liturgical category of beauty. Like the rest of Christian revelation, the liturgy is inherently linked to beauty. It is veritatis splendor. The liturgy is a radiant expression of the paschal mystery in which Christ draws us to himself and calls us to communion. St. Bonaventure would Say, in Jesus we contemplate beauty and splendor at their source. This is no mere aestheticism, but the concrete way in which the truth of God's love in Christ encounters us, attracts us, and delights us, enabling us to emerge from ourselves and drawing us towards our true vocation, which is love. God allows himself to be glimpsed first in creation, in the beauty and harmony of the cosmos. In the Old Testament, we see many signs of the grandeur of God's power as he manifests his glory and his wondrous deeds among the chosen people. In the New Testament, this epiphany of beauty reaches definitive fulfillment in God's revelation in Jesus Christ. Christ is the full manifestation of the glory of God. In the glorification of the Son, the Father's glory shines forth and is communicated. Yet, this beauty is not simply a harmony of proportion and form. The fairest of the sons of men is also, mysteriously, the one who had no form or comeliness that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus Christ shows us how the truth of love can transform even the dark mystery of death into the radiant light of the resurrection. Here the splendor of God's glory surpasses all worldly beauty. The truest beauty is the love of God, who definitively revealed himself to us in the Paschal Mystery. An important key text where you can also see the personal thought of, of Pope Benedict Joseph Ratzinger entering um, into so that sort of post-synodical um, discussion. So the beauty of the liturgy is really a revelation of the glory of God, which draws us in, draws us in to love God and to enter into communion with him. This glory can be perceived in God's creation, in the history of salvation, Old Testament particularly mentioned, but that culminates in Jesus Christ, especially in his paschal mystery, his passion, death, and resurrection. hope you have been able to experience some of this during the sacred triduum. But we can experience this mystery too in every celebration of Holy Mass when this Paschal mystery is made present ever anew in sacramental form. The Eucharist is also called the Sacrament of Love, the Sacramentum Caritatis, that's the title of the document. You know, in some medieval theories, each 
sacrament was associated with a particular virtue, either sort of a natural virtue or a supernatural virtue, and the Eucharist is the sacrament of, of divine love, of uh, sacramentum caritatis. And it is in this sacrament of love that we are drawn into communion with the Lord who blesses us with his presence and his grace and, above all, with the gifts of his body and blood under the appearances of bread and wine. Now, here in this passage, Benedict uh, also refers to the great Franciscan uh, theologian, Saint Bonaventure, who, according to Benedict, um, presents really, uh, or says that in Jesus we contemplate beauty and splendor at their source. Now, um, elsewhere, actually, uh, uh, Benedict refers to one of the sermons of St. Bonaventure where the great uh, Franciscan theologian calls Christ the beauty of every beauty. So Christ is the beauty of every beauty. But that beauty we are talking here about is not simply that which, according to a common definition, pleases when seen. So what is beauty? Uh, that which pleases when it is seen. Uh, the form, proportion, color. It's not simply a, a philosophical uh, definition of beauty that uh, we are talking about here, proportion, form, but it is, it is something that goes deeper. And in fact, uh, the medieval scholastic theologians considered, um, or some of them uh, uh, sort of co-opted beauty to what's known as the transcendentals, See, truth and goodness are considered universal properties of every existent reality. So they're really convertible with being itself, truth, goodness, and being. As it were, uh, different coins uh, uh, of the same, dif different sides of the, of the same coin. Doesn't really work as an analogy, but um, <coughs> gives you an idea. And hence they're known as transcendentals. In the 13th century then, beauty also came to be recognized as such a universal property of being. And it was Bonaventure uh, who was among the first Franciscan theologians to list beauty among these transcendentals. He would actually list it along with being, truth, and goodness. Dominican um, scholastics, including St. Albert the Great and St. Thomas, uh, did not go quite so far and actually have relatively little to say about beauty might have been the great um, vision of St. Francis of Assisi that spurred on um, St. Bonaventure to elaborate um, on beauty because one of, the, one of the striking things, of course, about St. Francis is precisely that um, sense of beauty which he perceived in creation, you know, the canticle of Brother Son, um, and also in, um, and above all in, in, in Jesus Christ. Now, but the Dominicans also, I mean, um, feel out of place a bit to uh, reflect on this here, but um, as far as I understand it, uh, the Dominicans also elaborate on um, the topic largely when they comment on the writings of that mysterious 6th century writer who took the pseudonym of St. Paul's Athenian convert Dionysius the Areopagite. It's a corpus of writings from the 6th century in Greek um, purporting to come from Dionysius the Areopagite, who we read in the Acts of the Apostles, was a convert of St. Paul's after he had preached on the Areopagus. And um, it's a very heavily Neoplatonic um, work, which uh, made sure that precisely that uh, um, reflection uh, always stayed present in the medieval tradition, that was of Platonic uh, reflection. Sue Dionysius uh, defines the beautiful as one of the sources of being. So, right, the course towards which all things move, since it's the longing for beauty which brings them into existence. And Dionysus also identifies the beautiful um, and the good. What this means in a nutshell is, as Benedict says, that the search for beauty has nothing to do with mere aestheticism. So it's not, uh, say, it's not uh, something um, superficial 
or, uh, uh, or world is can be, of course, but uh, what we mean here by the, by the search for beauty is not. Uh, and it's not a flight from reason either. It's not a flight uh, from um, a world we perceive as too, too ugly and too uh, corrupt. And uh, so we want to, uh, it's not a flight um, into some sort of um, aesthetic parallel world, um, but it brings us to the heart of being because we, from the divine perspective, perspective, being, truth, goodness, and beauty are simply convertible. And so in the Catholic tradition, beauty is ultimately understood also as a theological um, category. The catechism, the recent catechism, actually makes that quite clear in... Um, a remarkable passage, which I'd like to quote according to the shorter um, version, the Compendium to the Catechism, which was published in 2005. Interestingly enough, um, this um, paragraph on, on beauty is found in the section on the Eighth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So uh, it has something to do with truth. And in response to the question, what relationship exists between truth, beauty, and sacred art, the compendium says quite concisely, the truth is beautiful, carrying in itself the splendor of spiritual beauty. In addition to the expression of the truth in words, there are other complementary expressions of the truth, most specifically in the beauty of artistic works. These are the fruit both of talents given by God and of human effort. Sacred art, by being true and beautiful, should evoke and glorify the mystery of God made visible in Christ and lead to the adoration and love of God, the creator and savior, who is the surpassing invisible beauty of truth and love. So the truth is beautiful, carrying in itself the splendor of spiritual beauty. And that's also why it attracts us, it draws us. Of course, the Catholic tradition also knows of a false kind of beauty, of counterfeit beauty that does not carry in itself the splendor of uh, spiritual beauty, that does not lift us up towards God and his eternal kingdom, but instead drags us down and stirs our disordered desires for power, possession, and pleasure. The book of Genesis makes clear that it was such false beauty that at least contributed to original sin. The serpent provoked Eve into having rebellious thoughts about God, sows distrust between Eve and God, the idea that God is withholding something from them, from Adam and Eve, which they somehow have a right to have as well. And then when Eve sees the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden as being fair to the eyes and to delight to behold, she actually passes that one boundary which God had set for Adam and Eve in the garden. So that false beauty contributed, at least, or you know, stirred, helped to stir the will towards original sin. And, um, and Joseph Ratzinger, before he became pope, offered a profound reflection on this subject um, in uh, 2002 with. His, you can see how his thoughts then entered his later um, magisterial document as uh, Pope Sacramentum Charisdatis. And he reflects on um, precisely that um, well, paradoxical beauty which we see in Jesus Christ. There's this reference to Psalm 45 or 44, which is um, a description of a wedding of the king, um, the splendor of the king is virtues, an exaltation of the bride. And in the tradition of the church, this psalm is really read as a, um, a poetic celebration of Christ's spousal um, relationship with his church. So the king is Christ, the, 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 the bride is, is the church, the mystical wedding between uh, Christ and his church. And Christ is recognized as the fairest of men. Grace is poured upon his lips, uh, which also points to the beauty of his word, the beauty of his proclamation, his, um, his message. 
So the beauty of truth appears in him. But then it is the same Christ who is described with the words from Isaiah, which is actually used in, which are used in the church's liturgy um, on, on Good Friday. He had neither beauty, no majesty, nothing to attract our eyes, no grace to make us delight in him. So the same uh, Christ who is exalted as the fairest um, of all men, who, um, uh, from whom beauty pours forth, beauty also of his words, of his teaching, is then in his passion, in his suffering, perceived as someone who has no beauty, no majesty, nothing to attract us, course in the superficial level at all. And so, um, Ratzinger reflects, we come to know that the beauty of truth also embraces offense, pain, and even the dark mystery of death, and that this can only be found in accepting suffering, not in ignoring it. So there's a paradoxical beauty. So it's, you see, it's not simply uh, an aesthetic canon, but it leads us to something deeper. And the totality of Christ's beauty is actually shown to us precisely when we contemplate the disfigured image of the crucified Savior, who shows us his love to the end, even in giving his life for our life, for the life of the world. So that beauty which we need to learn to contemplate, the redemptive beauty of Christ, is both crucified and glorified didn't prepare any uh, presentation, but uh, I'd like to point you to some of the medieval depictions of the Veronica, the um, holy face of Christ, which was imprinted on the handkerchief, which the holy woman, known in uh, tradition in, as Veronica, offered to Christ on his way of the cross. And um, it's often depicted in, in medieval art, also in later art, but in medieval art, there are two types of um, the, this image, actually. One is the glorified Christ in all his splendor, in all his, in all his strength. Um, the other is the suffering um, uh, Christ, sort of um, blood streaming from his head crowned with the crown of thorns. So but it is, it is the same Christ. And the redemptive beauty of Christ is only accessible to us or uh, is only really um, can only touch us if we consider him as both crucified and glorified and that beauty shines forth well above all in the saints who were totally formed by that redemptive beauty of Christ each in their own uh, particular personality and individuality but it is also reflected in the works of art the faith um, has generated and um, again, I'd like to uh, return here to the thought of uh, Pope Benedict, because uh, he more than once expressed his profound conviction that in the difficulties and predicaments of today's world, we need a widening of the horizon of reason. Ever since the Enlightenment, and to some extent already before, our understanding of reason has been narrowed down to scientific uh, technical uh, understanding, um, rationality that is really um, limited to what can be counted, measured, you know, quantified. And um, Benedict is, uh, has always been confident that uh, religion can make a positive and essential contribution to opening up this rather limited conception of reason, and that our uh, understanding of beauty and the arts especially have an important uh, part to play in this. He even uh, sees, as he said several times, in the beauty that the faith has produced, a very effective and perhaps uh, the best today, uh, best available um, apology of Christianity, in the sense of defense of Christianity. Because today, um, while rational argument uh, remains important and indispensable, it is increasingly difficult to reach people simply with a kind of traditional pattern of apologetics um, because the understanding of reason has, has weakened uh, uh, so much in sort of post-modernity and it becomes sort of relative. 
um, that this, let's say, traditional apologetics, while it still has a place and is important in many ways, um, is perhaps not the effect, most effective way of, of reaching those who know little and perhaps understand little about Christianity. But the encounter with the beauty of God, especially through the arts, can still speak today to people with great immediacy and also um, effectiveness. Uh, Benedict uh, recommended Hansus von Balthasar's great project of theological aesthetics um, um, in this uh, regard. I was quite amused to find myself actually um, I put up in the Hansus von Balthasar room here, uh, up there. Mm. I, I find Balthasar's uh, elaborations on, on the subject of beauty somewhat abstract, to be, to be uh, honest. For example, I mean, he lived through that pr deep liturgical crisis of his time, but it hardly seems to be reflected in, in his own writings, uh, only perhaps very marginally. But for Benedict, it does not remain an abstract con concept. He, um, addresses the question very, very concretely. And um, I'd like to conclude with um, a, an address he gave uh, during a visit to the Cistercian Abbey of Heiligenkreuz near Vienna in Austria in September 2007, where he um, writes, or said, this, the interior disposition of each priest and of each consecrated person must be that of putting nothing before the divine office. Again, re reference to the rule of St. Benedict. The beauty of this inner attitude will find expression in the beauty of the liturgy. So that wherever we join in singing, praising, exalting and worshipping God, a little bit of heaven will become present on earth. I ask you, speaking here to uh, the monastic community, but in some ways this really um, applies mutatis mutandis to all the faithful. I ask you to celebrate the sacred liturgy with your gaze fixed on God within the communion of saints, the living church of every time and place, so that it will truly be an expression of the sublime beauty of the God who has called men and women to be his friends. Said so this is something which in some ways, in different ways, for, uh, applies to um, all of us. And we should be confident that um, if we truly, if we truly um, fulfill um, that commission, then also something um, of the beauty of God can be reflected in our lives and um, draw others to God, because that also is the most profound expression of what it means to um, love our neighbor, namely to draw our neighbor into sharing that uh, love of God which we have experienced.